Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2181 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 38 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Thank each of you for being here as we continue our series on the good news according to John the Apostle. Now last week we saw Jesus, the truth made flesh, enduring injustice with grace in a message titled Truth on Trial. In a couple key verses in chapter 18 were... 8 and 9, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words that he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those that you gave me. And our scripture today is John chapter 18, verses 28 through 19, verse 16. I want to make sure I'm on the right page. Yes, 1682 of the Pew Bible. If you want to turn there, if you didn't bring a Bible. John does not include many details about those six trials that Christ faced. We know that three of them were before the Jewish leaders, those officials, the chief priests, and the Pharisees. And this week we'll focus on the three trials before the Roman officials. And I've reprinted last week, I put the same six trials of Jesus in there. The top three are those before the Jewish high council in the the high priest. And the last three that we'll look at today is before the officials of Rome. Jesus was turned over to the Roman officials for crucifixion by the high priest in the Sanhedrin. The Romans official, after speaking with Jesus, knew that he had, had not guilty of any crimes and certainly not the death penalty, but they caved to political pressures in a rush to judgment. So follow along as I start with Chapter 18, verse 28, Jesus before Pilate. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonially uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out and asked them, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death that he was going to die. Pilate went back inside his palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and your chief priests handed over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by those Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. (laughs) What is truth? 
retorted Pilate. Without, with, with this, he went out again to the Jews that were gathered there and said, I find no basis for charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release this king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. This next section is Jesus sentenced to be crucified. Starting in or chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And he slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to do you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis of a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Do you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed, over, handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat on his judge's seat at the place of a, as the stone, called the, known as the stone pavement. In Aramaic, it's Gabbatha. It was the day of the preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And we know this last section of John is the fifth and final section. It's chapters 18, verse 21. It's the vindication of the word. And today we look at a rush to judgment. By the first time, the first two trials are over, and I'll point you back to your bulletin insert on the six trials of Jesus. Jesus was bleeding and badly bruised. He was abused by those high priests and their officials that were around him. But no official sentence was handed down after the first two trials. Remember, the trials took place under the cover of night and therefore would not have been considered legitimate by anyone the Sanhedrin had hoped to impress that day. Neither the common Jews nor their Roman overlords. John's narrative omits any type of third trial before the Sanhedrin, but we know with the other Gospels that it did happen. Because, possibly because he had already made his point, and it was sufficiently clear. The third Jewish trial was merely for show. It changed nothing. The third trial began about 6 o'clock in the morning, right as, as daybreak was happening. The high priest summoned the Sanhedrin to the official place of judgment, a semicircular hall on the eastern end of the royal portico of the temple. 
And while the trial did take place right after daybreak, and it was in the proper venue where all trials were supposed to be held, not in a person's house, as the first two were, and it was done before the eyes of the public, which all trials were supposed to happen, the religious leaders still violated their own rules in this third trial. The purpose was not to uncover any truth, but to find a charge that would satisfy a very specific set of requirements that the Jewish leaders wanted to bring against Christ. By the end of the third trial, the religious leaders settled on the charge of treason against Rome. Jesus Christ had claimed to be the Christ, whom Jews widely regarded as their only hope of expelling these Roman overlords or oppressors. They had hoped when the Messiah came, he would set up his kingdom, and they knew Jesus had not intended to do that. The ruling of treason would convince the Roman governor to execute Jesus, while before the Jews discrediting him as a blasphemer, at least that is what they had hoped. They were convinced that everyone could be pleased with the ruling. The empire would be ridden, ridden of a potential revolutionary once Jesus had been executed, and the people would reject him as just one of many false messiahs. It was an ideal solution or so they thought, that brought together an unlikely correlation of Pharisees, which were mainly the scribes and the lay teachers, Sadducees, which were the aristocratic, aristocratic chief priests, and the zealots, those underground revolutionaries that hoped to overthrow Rome as an empire. The religious leaders hauled Jesus from that temple to be condemned before the Roman, Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, the charge against the Jews changed from blasphemy within their own circles to treason after the Sanhedrin ruled. He would be judged by the Roman law rather than by the code of Jews. The trial before Pilate followed the standard four-step procedure. First the accusation, the interrogation, the defense, and then the verdict. As we start back in verse 28 and 29, the Roman governor actually didn't reside in Jerusalem most of the time. His home was, or palace was, in the city of Caesarea, northwest of Jerusalem. It was built in honor of Herod the Great, in order to honor Caesar Augustus, and was designed to resemble the city of Rome. When visiting Jerusalem, though, the governor, when he was there, Pilate occupied the governor's official residence, which was a little bit outside the temple there, but it was called the Praetorium, which had been the palace of Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great when Christ was born? That's where Herod ruled from. Since it was the throne of a Gentile, a home of a Gentile, the Jews were unwilling to enter that Praetorium because they were fear, afraid of becoming richly defiled. And if they were richly defiled, they could not take place in the Passover meal, which was to happen that evening. But John uses this irony for significant effect. The religious authorities remained ritually pure, even as they corruptly handed Jesus over a victim to their Gentiles for execution. As we move on to verses 30 and 32, the Jewish officials and the governor exchange illustrated their hatred for Rome. The Jews despised the Roman overlords. Their sarcastic reply was, if this man were not guilty of something serious, 
Would we even bother you, Pilate? Moreover, they appeared to expect Pilate to have unquestioning cooperation. They thought Pilate would take him immediately and have him executed. Romans were not opposed to killing an individual who was causing an uprising or civil unrest. Romans had nothing, no problem, especially Pilate killing Jews because they really didn't like the Jews. However, he already had, Pilate had two strikes against him at this point in time in history. And due to his close friendship with another high-ranking official, which was Lucius Sejanus, had been re recently executed because he was attempting to overthrow the emperor. So Pilate had to proceed cautiously here. When Pilate challenged the Jewish leaders to prosecute Jesus, according to the Jewish laws, the leaders revealed that there was a problem with the Jews being able to do that. While Rome generally allowed conquered nations to govern by their own rules, one thing they kept back was the capital punishment. Only Rome could put someone to death. The Jews had no authority to put somebody to death for a criminal crime. Rome had to rule in that. So we move on to verses 33 through 38. Once an accusation was made, the defendant was interrogated. And this was the opportunity for Jesus to tell his side of the story. And Pilate asked Jesus a pertinent question, presumably because he already knew what the charges were by the, the chief priest. And Pilate likely witnessed Christ's triumphal entry into the city a few days before that, as we're told in John chapter 12, verse 13. He wanted to know, in fact, was Jesus in the process of overthrowing the Roman government in Judea? And there was no simple answer for the to the governor's question. Jesus didn't come to lead the Hebrews in any type of political or military overthrow or uprising. Yet his king coming of God's kingdom would change the world dramatically from that point on. Pilate wanted to know if Jesus was a threat to the rule of Rome. He was, but not in a way that Pilate imagined or feared. Kingdoms of the earth are founded by power and military might, by their intellectual prowess, by political cunning, by financial abundance, and by social advantage. The kingdoms of, of heaven is founded only on truth. The arrival of the Messiah on that lonely night in Bethlehem, some 33 years prior to that, was indeed an invasion into the world, but not the type of invasion that Pilate considered. The kingdoms of earth or the kingdom of God. Kingdoms are founded on power, while the kingdom of God is founded only on truth. Jesus reassured Pilate in effect, he said, not to worry, governor, because my kingdom is founded on truth, not power. My followers are not arming for a physical battle or war. Pilate spurred Jesus' choice of truth over power. He says, what is truth indeed? The Roman, the Roman world was, much, was not much different than ours today. Pilate didn't rise to power and prominence by championing the cause of truth. Instead, the Romans were relentlessly pragmatic. Truth was a tool for expedience. In their minds, history is written by the victors. And as we look and study history of the past, that is true. History is written by the victors. 
and the truth or whatever or is whatever the powerful say that it is. But according to Jesus, choosing between truth and expediency is choosing which kingdom you're going to serve. Jesus presented Pilate with a choice, the same choice that he offers us. Compromise truth and advance your status in the earthly kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world, or walk in the light of truth and receive unseen rewards of God's kingdom. Pilate could not have been in a worse situation right now. It was a no-win scenario for him. Presented to him that morning, his good friend Sejanus had been recently executed as a traitor, so Pilate would not likely survive another disagreement with these Jewish aristocrats. The aristocratic Jewish roles has a significant influence on Rome as far as how Judea would be ruled. Each time they appealed to Rome, it would seem, they always gained an upper hand. And the last letter that, that Pilate received from Tiberius, according to history, made it clear that he had better respect the Jewish sensibilities or suffer an end to his own career, and maybe even worse. So now Jesus stood before him, innocent of any crime against Rome, yet condemned by a righteous, righteous crowd that insisted Jesus was a serious threat to Tiberius. Now, John doesn't record that fifth trial that I've listed on there, the trial before Herod Antipas, the governor of Galilee. Remember, Galilee was where Jesus grew up. So Pilate thought, well, I'll shift him over here to, to Herod because he had rule over where Jesus was raised. John doesn't go into that trial, but the other gospels tell us, according to Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12, Pilate tried to pawn off his problem by sending Jesus to Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great and the current ruler over Galilee where Jesus was raised. But Antipas would have none of it. He wanted, he was curious about Jesus, but he didn't want to rule on, his, on this particular case. So after humiliating Jesus, he returned Jesus to Pilate, wearing one of his royal garments as a joke. Pilate's gesture had gained him a much-needed friend in Herod, but Jesus remained his problem to solve. Eventually, Pilate has had to render a verdict. Having heard the accusations, he interrogated the defendant, and he heard his defense in verse 36. Pilate declared, I find no basis of charge against him in verse 38. And he repeated that three times in front of these Jews. He's innocent. You guys take him. As we move on to verses 39 and 40 of chapter 18, Anticipus wouldn't take Jesus off Pilate's hand, so he needed to resolve the issue in another way. A potential solution set in a cell just 2,000 feet from the praetorium. It was a known terrorist, and Pilate thought, now I've got him. This will seal their decision. Rome hated robbers and pirates, especially if they disrupted the trade either by land or by sea. But in Judea, robbery and murder came with a political agenda because they had many uprisings against Rome in that area. The man's name was reported to be Barabbas. He was a notorious enemy of the state, a killer and a thief, a kind of man Roman the Romans would relish an opportunity 
to crucify this person in the most excruciating manner. So he thought he finally had him. According to the custom of Pilate's predecessor, one man could be released from prison during the Passover festival as a goodwill gesture to the Jews. He thought he could tempt them in this mob of releasing Jesus instead of by giving them a much less attractive option. If the Jews chose to release Barabbas, a genuine enemy of Rome with no question, they risked their friendship with Tiberius. Certainly, they would choose to release an innocent man rather than invite the wrath of Caesar down on them. So Pilate concocted another solution. But Pilate underestimated the religious leader's hatred for Jesus. As we move on to chapter 19 and verse 1, Pilate's scheme didn't solve his problem. He said, no, release Barabbas. And it merely tightened that political vice that was crushing Pilate. He so wanted to let Jesus go because he knew he was an innocent man. And the other gospels tell us his wife had a, a nightmare about Jesus and begged him to release him. All this was weighing on Pilate's mind that day. But Pilate decided on another idea. With that political vice closing in on him, they had called his bluff. Now he had to release that criminal to be loose again against Rome. And despite to find, or desperate to find a solution and reluctant to release Barabbas, Pilate hoped to satisfy that mob's bloodlust by sentencing Jesus halfway to death. John Simpoyan's statement in verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. If you're just read, reading that by itself, you might say, well, he had him flogged. It was a shocking plan. You have to understand what flogging meant in those days. Jesus was led by a Roman garrison to the fortress of Antonio. If you look on your other side of your bulletin insert, I included that map of Jerusalem from last week. And we see where the Temple Mount is. And above the Temple Mount is Antonio Fortress. This is where Jesus was taken. It was adjacent to the temple. And not only that, he chose an expert in torture called a lictor. And he brought out a whip. And I put a picture of that whip for flogging. This is just a shortened version of that. But they would tie pellets into the flagrams, these t ends. And they would also tie in pieces of chicken bone within these leashes. So when they flogged somebody, it would rip in and tear their flesh. It was done by a master of, of torture. The leather straps could be either merely knotted or carry metal weights or even bits of sheep bone braided into the straps. The iron balls would cause deep contusions and the leather thongs and the sheep bones would cut into the skin, into the subculturous layer underneath. The flogging continued. The lacerations would tear, tear the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. According to a forensic pathologist who studied what scourging or flogging would do, it would cause rib fractures, severe lung bruises, lacerations with bleeding into the chest cavity, a partial or complete lung collapse of the lung, 
In addition, the lictor, that master of torture, was an expert in the art of torture and knew precisely how to beat a man within an inch of their life. We move on to verses 2 and 3. Because the scourging could be so potentially break the victim and send him into shock in less than five minutes, the soldiers turned the event into a spectacle, taking the delight and the humiliation of the victim. They would lash him three or four times and then follow by various sorts of taunts. And we know by the description in the other Gospels that they would bow down and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and strike his head, which had that crown of thorns piercing into his brow. And they would continue this in there till that victim could stand more, no more before dying. When the lictors completed his gruesome task, they draped that robe that Antipas gave him back on Jesus' battered, tattered, swollen flesh and sent him back to Pilate, wearing a crown of thorns in mockery of his kingship. We move on to verses 4 through 7 of chapter 19. Pilate hoped to see that seeing Jesus humiliated and beaten nearly to death would finally be enough to satisfy that mob in the courtyard. But they would accept nothing less than the sentence of crucifixion. We know it was in God's plan, but Pilate so desperately wanted a way to escape. So Pilate challenged the religious leaders to defy Rome by carrying out the death sentence himself so he would be rid of it. But the reply took the governor off guard. The title, Son of God, was significant even to the Romans. Caesar Augustus declared himself as the Son of God because he was heir to the power and titles of Julius Caesar, who was considered a god. Moreover, the title of the Son of God cast new light on Jesus' earlier statements, my kingdom is not of this world. As we move on, verses 8 through 11, at this point, Pilate began to panic. Before he had written off Jesus as a harmless lunatic, another one who wanted to be king or overthrow, overthrow Rome. His earlier questions, are you king of the Jews, in verse 1833, was condescending, prompting Jesus' question in return, is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? But this time, Pilate asked earnestly, where have you come from? Because he wanted to know what trouble he is in. Jesus didn't answer his question at that point. There was no reason to respond again. He had already told him. When Pilate threatened to exercise the power of the Son of God over the Son of God, Jesus clarified his earlier statements about the kingdoms of earth and the kingdoms of heaven. The world has changed. But Pilate didn't realize it. The rule of evil, which prizes power over truth, will fall. Not immediately, but we know in the last day, Christ will triumph over all. Because truth triumphs over power. Ultimately, that will happen. No one on earth can exercise power unless God permits it. It gives us a little bit of reprieve as we think of our election coming up. No one has power in this world unless God permits it. And each must account for their use of power, whether it's in defense of truth or seeking the destruction of truth. 
Jesus reminded Pilate that his power had been granted from above and that he was subject to divine judgment, whether he wanted to realize it or not. This dialogue was Jesus' final plea to Pilate to submit to the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of Tiberius or any other kingdom. Jesus' final statement to Pilate, who pronounced a grave judgment, the one handed over to you, who handed over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Now this one that Jesus was talking about, it could have been Satan, Judas, Caiaphas, Annas, each played a crucial role in turning Jesus over to the Romans. But they did not act alone. The priest, all the priesthood was guilty, as were the members of the Sanhedrin who made that final ruling. The crowd that called for crucifixion. Therefore, I suggest that when he said, the one who turned me over to you is guilty of a greater sin, was each Hebrew that took part in delivering Jesus to Pilate that day. The Lord accusers could likely hear his dialogue that night or that day. And he may have said it more as a warning to the entire crowd. You are the ones of a greater guilty, guilty of sin. And when Pilate ultimately rejected the truth to preserve his power, Jesus recognized that he chose from a point of ignorance. The people who headed, had handed him over for execution committed that greater sin because they did it with a divine benefit, a revelation. They prized the Lord's covenant with Abraham. They memorized the scriptures. They studied prophecy. And yet, despite their daily interaction with the divine truth, they chose to sin. Well, Pilate disposed of Jesus because of political, he was a political nuisance. The Hebrews plotted against the very one they hoped would come, the Messiah. As we go for the last four verses of today's passage, by now Pilate was frantically searching for a way to release Jesus without losing favor of that Jewish aristocracy and jeopardizing his advancement in the kingdom of Tiberius because it was crucial for him to remain in power. So finally, he brought Jesus out to them and tried to shame the crowd into backing down. But the mob wielded an ultimate threat. They planned to inform Tiberius that Pilate supported another king of Judea, which would be a death sentence for him. Pilate had to choose Tiberius or Jesus, the kingdoms of earth or the kingdom of heaven. He had to choose between power or truth. The pressure of the world proved too great for Pilate, as it is true for too many of our politicians. Public popularity trumps personal integrity. When forced to choose, he elected to trust his power, to serve the kingdoms of this world. Without another word, he moved to the place as official place of judgment, which was called the Bema seat, the judgment seat, the seat on a raised platform from which official decrees were read, including verdicts and sentences in criminal trials. Pilate decided to appease his Jewish authorities. Here is your king, he says. The priest and mob shouted back, we have no king but Caesar. And with that, the crowd sided with the kingdoms of the world. An interesting note in these last four verses, John notes that the time was noon in the day of the preparation for the Passover. John's references to time and space 
time of day or calendars always had some sort of theological or symbolic meaning. At noon was a time when the high priest and the priest in the temple would begin the preparations for the Passover. That's when they would begin bringing the lambs in to be slaughtered into the temple. And it was going to be a busy day for them. During Passover, they had over 100,000 pilgrims that came to Jerusalem, and each of them presenting for their family a lamb to be slain. They were going to be busy all afternoon into the evening before sundown came. John wanted to stress that Jesus had been sentenced at noon, and he would be hanging on the cross as the Passover lambs were bleeding and bleeding as they were being slaughtered in the temple. The Passover lamb would be on the cross. The six trials of Jesus are now over. They were all unfair, all prejudiced. Centuries had reduced the bodies of Jesus' enemies to dust, and God only knows their souls. Nevertheless, their choice remains our choice today. The choice that each of us have to make. Do we choose truth or power? Do we choose God's way or the world's way? Do we choose faith or works? Do we choose grace or pride? That's the same choice that Pilate had that day. The same choice that we had. Pilate tried in vain to seek some sort of middle road, some sort of scheme that would serve both, but neither, without having to choose between these choices. But there was none. Jesus calls all people to serve his kingdom rather than the world's kingdoms. And so we must choose. And the application today of John chapter 18, verse 28 through 19, verse 16, is a road not taken. In 1920, Robert Frost intrigued us with the opening lines of a classic poem, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler along I stood. Unfortunately, our journey through life brings us to those forks in the road, but they're not wistful and winsome as this poem is. The choice we face is not between convention and curiosity, but between truth and power, between riches on earth or treasures of heaven, between earthly success or spiritual power, spiritual purity, between short-term comfort and eternal reward, and the urge to preserve our own comfort in the here and now is so powerful, and it can cause us to override our decisions to obey God. But let's, and let's face it, the rewards of being true to God are sometimes intangible and sometimes delayed, which can make our obedience a matter of faith and trust. Pontius Pilate stood in that critical juncture he had, which had an internal impact. Now, we know that God had planned this, but Pilate had his choice to make. He had to decide which kingdom he would serve to render a not guilty verdict, which he tried to over th three times, and release Jesus 
would have been to destroy his political career and may have invited severe punishment or even death from Rome. So instead, he submitted to the kingdoms of, the, of God. Instead of submitting to the kingdoms of God, Pilate set truth aside for the sake of power, worldly success, and short-term comfort. The road we travel forks more than once in our life. We don't have just one decision for God. Our initial decision to trust Christ is the most important, the most crucial of those choices, but it's the first of many. Each day, we must choose which kingdom we're going to serve. Which power are we going to submit to? Robert Frost ends his poem, I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. So our choice today, truth or power, God's way or the world's way, faith or works, grace or pride, each day we face these choices. And that's the application of today's scripture. What choice are we going to make on a daily basis once we've accepted Christ as our Savior? And next Sunday, we come to that fateful, horrible day prophesied by John the baptizer. In John chapter 1, verse 29, he said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Christ is that Lamb that was sacrificed for us. Next week's message is death on the cross. So I'd encourage you to read chapter 19, verses 17 through 37 in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your love, your mercy, your goodness to us. We thank you that Jesus Christ was our lamb who was slain. We thank you that we don't have to undergo eternal punishment for our sins because Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we may be made right in your sight. We give you the praise, the honor, and the glory for it all. Pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.